Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. I kind of stumbled upon what I call now disruption 3.0, which is systemic disruption, which is that it's not an isolated or specific event. It's really a constant. It's not linked just to a product development or innovation or technology. You don't maybe notice too much when you're relevant, but you very much notice it if you're not relevant. Really having beginner's mind, Shoshin, not relying on assumptions. And the more reversible the decision, the less it actually matters on what basis you're making the decision. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 48 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Roger Spitz. Hi, Roger. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Harsha. It's such an honor, pretty important topics, and so <laughs> fantastic to see the progress and the traction you're getting. It's really fantastic. Brilliant. And, and it's an honor to have you on the show, Roger. So that, that's great. So before we begin, I just wanted to thank all the supporters of the show. It's now been downloaded in 96 countries, including the Bahamas, Slovakia, Croatia, and Thailand. All great holiday destinations if you're looking to go, go for a quick break. Um, and thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast and YouTube channel. For any new listeners, please feel free to connect on LinkedIn and do subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content. Now back to the show. Based in San Francisco, Roger is president of Tech Essential Climate and Foresight Strategy and chairman of the Disruptive Futures Institute. He has given over 100 keynote talks globally and guest lectured at many of the world's most prestigious academic institutions. As former global head of technology M&A with BNP Paribas, Roger advised on over 50 transactions with deal value of $25 billion and raised $2 billion in capital. He launched the bank's US M&A practice in San Francisco, having built its European technology and digital investment banking franchises in London and Paris. After a master's in corporate and international finance from the University of Durham in the UK, Roger qualified as a chartered accountant. He has lived in 10 different cities across three continents and is bilingual, English and French. Welcome, Roger. Welcome, Harsha. And we can do this in English then. Oh, fantastic. My, my <laughs> French is okay, but I think it could have been pretty limited. <laughs> Merci beaucoup, Roger. <laughs> exactly. Whilst I was chatting with Roger in a prep call for the podcast, I saw that he had such a wealth of experience that it really would be difficult to do it all justice in just one episode. So as an experiment, and given the technology uh, aspect, the interview will be split into two different parts. The first will focus on Roger's time in finance, and the strategies that have helped him have a successful career. And part two, which will be released next week on Wednesday, the 8th of February, will look at the work he is doing with Tech Essential, the Disruptive Futures Institute, and the four guidebooks that have been published on the definitive guide to thriving on disruption. So, Roger, I'm a big fan of the arts. Is there a performer, song, book, or film which you'd like to share with our listeners? 
So that's always the impossible question because this is so much across so many different <laughs> spectrum of areas. But, you know, I'm crazy about cinema and I'm crazy about um, philosophy and existential philosophy. So there's a movie which is, it's actually two movies called Smoking and Non-Smoking um, by Alain René, which is delving on the concept of contingency. So it's similar to Sliding Doors, which I think it's with Gwyneth Paltrow. And yeah. it's the idea of, you know, you, you have one movie and on that movie at the beginning, the one of the protagonists, she doesn't hear the doorbell. She's outside smoking a cigarette. It's uh, Sabina Zema. And then she doesn't hear the doorbell. So a set of events happen by virtue of not having um, had that, that kind of interaction. And then the other movie starts in a similar fashion. She's in the garden, smoking a cigarette, I think, chatting with friends, and then she hears a doorbell. And then, and the whole movie is very different by virtue of, of that. And I, I love that concept of contingency. It's a kind of existential concept. And it, it ties into, in a way, freedom, agency, and choice, and indeterminacy, the fact that things are not predetermined, which we see as a good thing, incidentally. Oh, I just love that, and yeah, and I'm I'm sort of really interested in this whole idea of you know determinism and free will, and the, mm -hmm. this whole concept of you know for some people they think look uh, everything in life is almost predetermined in the sense that you're born in a particular place with particular either advantages or disadvantages and and a set of genes. So does that mean that because of that uh, everything is almost pre-planned for the rest of your life? Or do we have free will? And I think those are really interesting concepts. Um, but and I'm not sure that there's a particular answer. So I, I just love that choice of film. Um, and I have to check that out. But sort of going, going back to the beginning, so what led to your interest in finance and to studying at Durham University, which for our sort of US listeners is one of the most prestigious universities in the UK, just after Oxford, Cambridge and the London School of Economics? <laughs> Which you went to, Harsha, yes. for, for your undergraduate. It's an amazing <laughs> university. Um, no, listen, I think for, for, for finance, you know, it's, it's, it's quite funny because at the time it was very fashionable to be in finance, to be in banking. Um, it wasn't yet perceived as having destroyed the world. <laughs> it was before kind of the big tech era to a degree. Um, there was a certain cachet in terms of um, <clears throat> opportunities and, and potential compensation, travel um, for, for, you know, whether it's the city of London or Wall Street. So in a way, it was it was a traditional university. It had a brand. I had done a, a, a less known kind of um, back, background and things before. And it was a way of kind of getting some kind of validation, a specialization, and hopefully getting a door into into activities like um, like finance and that um you're in well you you have a you know gain independence and that so i think for that it, it it had a lot of virtues at the time and i'm certainly glad i did it what's interesting is that 20 years later and with hindsight or 15 years later and having moved to san francisco you realize how you know, number one, banking and finance is kind of out of fashion. Two, it's actually kind of a bit of a negative. It's like sort of saying, you know, you work for the mafia or something like that <laughs> for some people. And it's just simply not zeitgeisty. I mean, you're, you know, you're in San Francisco. 
you know, banking and M&A is like very quaint. You know, everybody's in tech or has a startup or is a researching and, you know, at Berkeley or Stanford or doing something kind of, you know, trying to change the world. I'm not saying they're achieving it, but but certainly the perception of banking. So it's funny how not only does the world change, we change as humans. I'm not the same as I was some years ago in the ways I am, in ways I'm not. And the perception and different cities have their own vibe. You know, what ticks in London or New York is not what ticks elsewhere. <laughs> no, I, I just love that. And I, I, I just love the whole idea of almost reinventing ourselves over time, because clearly the choices we make in our 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or going on, they're not the same. That you know, they're, they're always evolving and always changing. And I think it's a, a, a clever man or woman who actually takes a chance to sort of step back and really think about their lives and how they're evolving. Um, so yeah, no, I just love that those points that you're making. And and sort of going back to you know, obviously post Durham. So we we both studied uh, for the chartered accounting qualification, and, and it ha- happened to be at EY. And uh, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. Um, and I think we were both in audit. So how did you find that experience, um, Roger? Yeah, no, it, it's funny. Like many people in London, and that we, you know, we, we end up in in these kind of backgrounds, and um, and then given the big six or eight or four today or three <laughs> tomorrow, it's you know we probably it's twenty five percent probability that we went to the same firm, and in our case, I think even the the same building just yeah. by Waterloo. Um, but listen, I think you know with hindsight. Um, but even what I thought at the time, it's it's great optionality, right? It's a professional, especially in, in the UK system, it's professional qualification. I think not that it it matters or determines your future, but on the balance of probabilities, you know, many of the C-suite, the CFOs, decision makers end up with an ACA qualification in the UK system. It's like the MBA in the US, I guess, from a good university. Um, and also what I quite liked is that unlike law, which, which you know, half of my family are lawyers and, you know, I respect the profession and that, but I find that the ACA qualification in a way is kind of like in, in an MBA sense, quite opening optionality. And one of the things I like to think about is, is really planting seeds and having optionality and having decisions which are kind of reversible because you can do pretty much anything after words and that's what you know uk plc and the uk market allows you is to really do everything so for me it was a great experience a great um professional kind of start and i would say ey culturally was a really good fit i mean i stayed there for for some years i had some comments in paris i worked with a lot of the officers globally i still have contacts with ey even today your ex-ey colleagues who are elsewhere so I just felt, you know, culturally, professionally, it was really a very good option for for me. So, so from audit, yeah. So I, I also sort of left audit after a few years. I, I moved into tax because I was always mm-hmm. thinking about how best I could add value um, to my clients. So, was that a similar motivation for you in terms of moving from audit into uh, corporate finance? Yeah, I think like many um, decisions we make, there multiple factors, right? It's not necessarily just just one cause. So, yes, for sure, the level of kind of interest of pure audit wasn't phenomenal, right? It's it's kind of to say the least. You go, you go through the ropes, and for those who don't know it, I encourage you to watch some of the multi Python sketch on the topic of auditing and accounting, and you'll get a better sense of what the 
<laughs> what the perception is and sometimes the real life of, of the professional entails. I was going to ask you, did you do the banking side or did you do the insurance side? Because I, I did the Law- Lloyd's um, insurance syndicate. So uh, what, what, what did you do? What, what... Yeah, so I think I did neither. I think it was... Uh, <laughs> How did you miss um, that? <laughs> I know, right? It was It was just normal corporate audits. So there okay. were different industries on the corporate side it wasn't either um i forget what they call but it wasn't kind of financial services related right. it was okay. um you know general yeah, the MNCs and, that. and then i moved yeah mnc's industrial companies all type of companies and and to be fair despite the attractiveness or lack thereof of pure audit it does give you exposure you know you're starting in a career to diving into different industries you know nothing about so in a way it's quite quite broad but you know to your question yes at some point, you feel you want to, you know, do something potentially a bit more interesting. You want to do something that adds a bit more value, not just for the clients, but also for yourself, right? Yeah. The differentiation or the unique brand in terms of being an auditor is quite limited. So you can do it a year or two at the beginning of your articles or whatever they're called to become a child accountant, but you don't necessarily want to spend your life doing it. So, so there's an element of personal branding, differentiation, um, value creation. And then, you know, candidly and, and selfishly, I guess there's an element also of uh, opportunities, remuneration, path to, to different kind of comp- compensation. Um, and banking can be, especially for certain activities like M&A, you know, with bonuses and other things, more remunerative than, um, than accounting or audit. Um, although I, I must say, I must say when I look at the... You know, to be fair, and not that conversation is the only thing, but early in the career, you know, of life, I wasn't saying it wasn't a factor to going into M&A. But I must say, when you look at the compensation today of even audit partners of some of these firms, um, it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty, pretty reasonable, good. you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> if, if they don't get sued too much. <laughs> It's funny because when when I was um, working at EY, one thing I was trying to do was always think about trying to stand out and distinguish myself. And I actually Mm -hmm. started learning Japanese. So um, it's well, and and it's funny, Roger. I think before I started learning, I thought, my God, this is going to be really complicated. But actually, once you start, and I think it it comes down to mindset. I think if you want to do something and you can actually see a potential pathway, and this was a way to try to sort of get to better clients or different clients, then mm-hmm. you, you're motivated. And I think we can pick this up maybe in the second half of our conversation. But, you know, it's all about, I think, sometimes trying to just stand out from the crowd because you have, a you know, 150 peers in your sort of intake. How You, you can't sure. outwork them. So how do you stand out? And the funny thing is Japanese never got me to a client, but actually Japanese got me introduced to, to some tax partners. And that's how I ended up in tax. So it's really funny how these things work out. You never know, you know, there isn't a linear path to where you're going to get to. But yeah, it's it's just interesting, I think, when you look back on your career, how how it involves. But but actually talking about sort of corporate finance, for me personally, I never uh, was that interested in that particular area. I was more interested in the derivative side and I went down that route. But I've always been mm-hmm. intrigued about sort of M&A and how companies can create value through acquisitions or divestments. And, you know, is it through sort of synergies or, you know, building market shares? Um, I mean, what's your view? Because clearly you're, you're the expert and it'd be great to sort of hear your insights on that. Listen, it's a great question and, they, you know, numerous studies on uh, <clears throat> the extent of value creation or value destruction from 
from deals, right? So it's not a it's not always clear cut, and it, it's case by case depends on the deals and that. I would say that in my time in in M and A for much of the time, you know, I wanted to believe that uh, all the deals were very strategic and created a lot of value. Um, the reasons and the strategic drivers for doing it were, you know, often new technology or new market, the synergies, the growth which can go with that, and I think for for a lot of the time, M and A, you know, M and A strategic partnerships, investments, or divestments for activities that don't necessarily make sense can be a good way of of creating value and developing strategic optionality, etc. So there's no no you know, nothing wrong with that. I would say that I personally found, and that kind of links to my own journey. I personally found that around five six years ago, what I was still in investment banking. What was keeping my clients up at night was no longer just the kind of M&A or normal strategic playbook. Um, and when I say my clients, you know, you reach a certain level and you're in M&A, you're speaking to you know, the shareholders, the boards, the CEOs, the C-suite. And you could sense that there was something else happening, which was beyond disruption, what people call kind of disruption, as in the Clayton Christensen, you know, disruptive innovation. And... It's interesting because I took stock of that and went down my own rabbit hole, partly professionally, but also it then ended up being my personal development around what is disruption? Why is that playbook not working? What is keeping people up at night? And that's where I kind of stumbled upon what I call now disruption 3.0, which is systemic disruption, which is that it's not an isolated or specific event. It's really a constant. It's not linked just to a product development or innovation or technology. And that is very broad. And that's what led me to get becoming more interested in complexity, systems thinking, and futures and foresight. Um, in the areas I spend time now, beyond the point solutions or the plug and play playbooks and that, to realize that actually, you know, the value creation and avoiding value destruction is coming from building anti-fragility, resiliency, and things which are not necessarily anymore just the M&A playbook. So the answer to the question five or 10 years ago would have been more vanilla in terms of, yeah, A, B, C, D, amazing, <laughs> M&A, this is what it does, can't do without it. Now I'm a bit more circumspect, not because there's anything wrong with M&A or an M&A strategy. I think it's a part of a normal corporate life and important, but just simply because I think it doesn't necessarily deliver not the value creation, but the things that are disrupting industries and companies are not necessarily fixed by M&A in the same way as it might have been in my personal view in the 20th century. I suppose one of the reasons why I asked that question was that, you know, obviously, you know, when you're looking to value a company, you look at the cash flows and you've got a discount mm -hmm. rate. And presumably everybody has that same level of uh, insight into what the, the cash flows are going to be. So, I mean, if you look at a very simplistic level, then it's down to your discount rate. And therefore, that's how you come up with a, a number which you're prepared to pay for those cash flows. So I was I always used to think, like, how do you, you know, unless you have a different discount rate or you have a different way of valuing those cash flows or you think there are synergies, then how do you uh, assign different values to you know, what should be a similar sort of number. So that was one of the reasons why I asked that question, that yeah. is there anything that you could tell me which gives you a particular edge? Um, 
But, you know, I mean, uh, what, what do you think, yeah. Roger? I mean, this is very tangential, but so you, no, you, no, you can pass on it, but. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a good and fair question. I think, listen, there's several things, right? One is strategic M&A, so you're a corporate. So in that case, to your point earlier, you know, when you talk about season value creation, yes, not everything is the same, right? So you can't necessarily pay just for synergies or pay for all the synergies, but it is a factor. A same company might have an intrinsic valuation of X, but for you, it might have a strategic value, which allows you to pay a bit more. So that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect is, you know, a lot of the private equity deals um, doing leverage buyouts. So to your point, yes, the, the state of the company, its finances should be pretty much the same, you know, irrespective, unless you're really not doing a job or have information that you're not meant to have or able to have. But but often you might have a different um, viewpoint as how you can develop the, the company in terms of operationals. You know, you might have certain experience in terms of operational um, aspects to make it more profitable. You might have a strategic plan for it. Now, again, there's only so much, if at all, that you should or would be willing to pay for, for that. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily change the discounted cash flows or the valuation today, but it can infer on the valuation. And then candidly, often you pay too much. I mean, it's one of the big dilemmas of the, of the world, right? It's, you know, the Marx Brothers joke with it, which I don't want to be part of a club that wants to have me. But it's like the dilemma of, you know, if you win an auction when there's a contested asset and you win the auction, it's great. You bought it. It means you've paid the highest price. Do you want to be the one that's paid the highest price? And how much of that is exactly the same price you feel is the value and the worth of the company? compared to what you feel you had to pay to to secure it. So that's where not all acquisitions turn out the way they are intended because they're overvalued or people overpay. But but you know generally I think to be fair, it's you know it's an important part of the toolbox of companies' developments. And you know, when you're selling a company, you might benefit from maybe you've paid some too much, but you sell them at a very good price because it's a hot auction for a non-core asset that some private equity players are prepared to overpay for. And you're benefiting from that when the markets are high and it's an activity which you consider less attractive. So, you know, kind of works both ways as well. No, no, th thanks for that, Roger. I mean, ultimately, you only need two people to, to create a market to bid something up. And you mm -hmm. need to be very careful about not overpaying. But, you know, I think that, that that's a, a podcast in itself. So, <laughs> but but thank, thanks for those insights. So, I mean, so moving on to careers. So if there's somebody considering a career in banking, and that now obviously there are so many different aspects. There's trading, there's structuring, there's um, you know, working on the M&A side, there's advisory, all these different, you know, like a myriad of different areas. But are there any mm -hmm. sort of key things that you think um, for somebody who's you know looking to move into banking or who is in banking at the moment and trying to develop their career? What are the skills, the key skills that helped you um, achieve great success in, in your career? Yeah, listen, I, it's always a, <laughs> a debate what success is. But I guess, you know, um, spending a few decades in M&A probably is, is, a, is a sign of some form of success or survival in, <laughs> in its own right. Um, but no, listen, I think I think it was a, a career where some of the you know, skills or qualities you want to kind of develop and hone in on, they're going to be different kind of categories, right? I think some are going to be the more, you know, the if I typed it into chat GPT, it would give me the following answers. For, I'm guessing we could try it after this <laughs> podcast, but it's going to sort of say, you know, 
technical valuation, financial skills. So there's no doubt about it that it's it's a uh, you know it's not a science fiction writing consultancy, right? Banking. So banking and finance, it, you know, they want you to have strong strong technical skills and that. I think one of the most important things both to get in, but also to stay in for some time for the, you know, whatever time one decides is interpersonal skills and and really a good understanding of evaluating stakeholders, managing and evaluating stakeholders. And to be honest, there's a psychological element to that. I'm not saying it's all manipulative, but there's a psychological element. And I'm thinking of NLP as a kind of not the natural language processing yeah. from, from AI, but the neural, well, you know, when you kind of simulate... Yeah, yeah. Yes, sure. thank you. Yeah. And there's an element of of that. I'm not saying it in a derogative way of just imitating people and that, you know, it's completely superficial, but there is an element both internally with your stakeholders in terms of managing expectations, positioning yourself, understanding the different power plays and politics, but also in terms of clients and, and negotiating with the counterparty or pitching a, a deal to try and secure the mandate. So there's a very, very important element of appreciating who the stakeholders are, mapping the stakeholders, understanding the dynamics between the stakeholders and understanding how you might impact the decision-making stakeholders, whether they're internal or external. So that's a very important aspect. I would say there's another aspect which is probably quite similar for law or many other sort of similar professions, not that you can say everything similar, but which is project management and attention to detail. Um, you know, I'm guessing that you don't survive too long in banking, financial services, insurance, law, if you don't have reasonable attention to detail and project management. Um, and, and it's not necessarily only a good thing, because sometimes you're so attentive to detail, you become so specialist, you become a perfectionist, you're scared about failing or being adventurous. So I'm not necessarily saying it's a value judgment of something to aspire to, but it is something which is a strong, important feature or skill for banking. Um, and then I'll add two other aspects, which are m- very important, especially as you evolve. One is kind of the zooming in and the zooming out, being able to have a, a strategic perspective of the big picture. That's that's very difficult sometimes. Um, so you really, you know, the value you'll bring often is that is that perspective. Um, and then finally, listen, you know, all jobs and life is is full of interesting challenges and ups and downs and hills. So persistence, resilience, grit, um, you got to, you know, you got to have that because it's, I mean, nothing is plain sailing, but but investment banking or it certainly isn't. <laughs> no, and I, but the one thing that really strikes me from that, I think, is that, look, to get into the door, uh, get your foot into, into the door, you have to have obviously a base level of technical skills. So clearly things like Excel, modeling, understanding mm-hmm. basic financial mathematics. But then I think very early on, it's really trying to figure out the lay of the land and you know, look at your boss. What is it that he or she wants from you? And it's about making them look good, but also the other stakeholders within the bank. And I remember when you know I was going through the approvals process with in, in, when, when I was in banking, they, you need to make sure that the people you're working with in the, so I, w- I was in the front office and the people you're mm-hmm. working with in, in the middle office, they know how to book your deal. 
the the regulatory people, the um the compliance people. And it's not about being smart or being the cleverest guy in the room. It's really about making sure that they're comfortable with what you're doing. So that when you go through the approvals process, there is there are no surprises. At every level, you know, it's thinking, okay, how can I obviously do my job well, make sure there are no surprises, make my boss look good, but also understanding maybe is your boss, um, do they want to help you progress? Because sometimes, you know, we do have situations where things aren't working out for whatever reason. So I think it's also mm-hmm. trying to have that sure. emotional intelligence of figuring out, okay, maybe that person, for whatever reason, is not working out. Do I need to look for a different department or do I need to leave the, the company? And, and those aren't easy decisions. And these are very, you know, judgmental gut instinct. Um, sometimes it's the subconscious which informs us. But really, I think uh, developing your emotional intelligence, your psychology, and really understanding yourself. Because I think when you do understand yourself, it, these things come naturally to you. I mean, what, what do you think, Roger? No, I mean, listen, all everything you've said is just so, so, so true, right? Um, you know, there's a very significant aspect of, of awareness and, you know, emotional intelligence and that. And it's interesting because there's one word I use today a lot. Um, I use many words a lot, probably too much, but one in particular um, as almost a substitute for for innovation or for whatever it is, which is relevance. And ultimately, relevance, it's a, it's a very easy but brutal measure. You know, it's kind of has a Darwinian element to it, um, which is, you know, if you're relevant... And that relevance is something that's tested every day. You can be relevant today and not tomorrow, but vice versa to our earlier discussion around things that are not predetermined. You can be irrelevant today and suddenly become relevant, but that is tested and tried every single day. And so to have the right skills, to stay in the game, to to continue what you're doing or to develop something new, you really just need to develop relevance, whether that's relevance for your stakeholders, for your boss whether it comes through skills, expertise, something unique you have, that you're just very likable, that you're so indispensable that people cannot do without you. Sometimes it's because you work hard. Sometimes it's because you're very reliable. Sometimes it's because you speak Japanese, whatever it might be. And and it's a combination of things. But that, that is really a word which, and I think, you know, for the topic we're talking about around, you know, reframing and resetting careers and that, relevance is probably the most important filter and frame do you feel that you have at a given time what it takes that that's relevant or do you feel that it will continue to be that and there's a brutal test for it you know you you know when you're you don't maybe notice too much when you're relevant but you very much notice it if you're not relevant i mean it's if it's a product no one's buying it if it's a person and you don't get necessarily the the opportunities in the job market etc so that's a word which I kind of find encapsulates everything, which is relevance or not. No, I, I just love that. I think that that's so true that, you know, say if you're um, on LinkedIn and you're, you're sharing a post, if people react to it or uh, say you're doing a podcast and you're releasing it, if nobody's listening, mm-hmm. that that is a very important piece of information that, that mm-hmm. you're not either doing something right or you need to change your guess or whatever it is. And I, and I do think that is really helpful to you know, give you information because I think life is about getting information and figuring yeah. out, okay, I'm going down this path. 
is this the path I should be going down and really testing before you sort of sell the farm or invest the farm into something, really mm-hmm. understand, is this something that is worthwhile investing in? And and actually, I think that moves on quite nicely to sort of your work in VC. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, a, a fascinating area because it, it's not just about trying to evaluate the cash flows and then the investment, but really trying to think, is this investment, is it going to dominate a market? Is it going to take it over? I mean, you know, maybe looking back at, say, Facebook in the early days, um, nobody really thought, you know, could they really have predicted this is going to be the dominant social media platform or Google mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is? So what, what do you think, Roger, makes a good VC investor? And what are the skills that, you know, say, if you were going to hire somebody, what would you be looking for? Um, in, 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 you know, a new uh, person to the industry? Yeah, now these are important, important aspects, right? Um, for, I mean, important questions for those who are interested in thinking about uh, venture capital and that. And um, one of my roles is, you know, I'm not um, executive day to day, so I don't get that involved, but I'm kind of a, you know, advisory partner with a, with a fund. We raised 125 million in, in the future of mobility between Berlin, London, and, and Palo Alto. And we sort of, you know, it's a, it's a normal VC fund and that. And, you know, you look at a number of things, I guess, um, and time will tell as to how successful it is, again, to our ideal relevance, right? It's only when you exit and you get a return <laughs> that you kind of know um, for sure. But as a, you know, having spent some time doing this and, and advising on these things, I think there's an element around, to our earlier discussion, you know, having some sense of the intrinsic fair value of the opportunity. And and that's kind of not because you know John, not because you're super emotional about this thing or going by hype. Um, you know, it's really getting a sense of the fair value. I think there's an element around that, which is then the the conviction you have on the situation and the risk you're prepared to take. Let's let's not forget that in venture capital, one of the words or 50% of the subtext of venture capital is venture. So by definition, <laughs> it's risky. You can lose a lot or everything and you may get returns. Um, and that's actually one of the, the syndromes and issues maybe with the with the whole industry for however much I appreciate the, the value it brings because it allows a lot of innovative companies, not just you know TikToks of the world, but companies that are helping with important problems like healthcare and, and many other things, education, the energy transition. But it's really, you know, do you want a model that's relying on a home run and then it doesn't matter that you've done 20 dud investments or do you kind of, you know, and I think there's always a little bit of chance and an element going to be in that. So, you know, you want the curiosity, the foresight and the vision to think, you know, what are the next order implications? What are the building blocks you have there? The quality of the team, the quality of the ideas, the possibilities for disruption. You're kind of almost mapping first, second, third order implications of a multiple element of things, it's almost like what you do as a foresight practitioner. You know, what are the multiple outcomes and possibilities? And are there many whereby you feel that the combination of the ingredients you have allow you to hopefully get a reasonable return? I think networking is key. You need to source the opportunities. I mean, I look at my, you know, my colleagues at Vector Partners more than me because I'm not that involved day to day. I mean, and I used to do that in banking. I mean, I used to network was just like having breakfast. I mean, you 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 know, 90% of my time was probably networking <laughs> for the past few years of my, my career. But networking is just so key because you need to sense what the opportunities might be. You need to then 
speak and have a sense from speaking to enough people as to what you feel about the opportunity, you then will need to exit it at some point and get a sense of the quality of the management, the team. So, so networking is absolutely key. I don't know if it's as applicable for venture capital as, as for listed markets, but I do some, often think about you know, the Warren Buffett's, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. So that's, that's an interesting thing, although in its own right, it's not because you know, everybody's fearful and you just go for something that no one wants, that it's a good deal, that because you bet on something that a lot of people are betting on, that is a bad deal. So it's not so clear cut. But I would add another element to the mix, and this is just my own personal, I, didn't, I hadn't thought of this as much as a venture capitalist or when I was in investment banking, but, but today it's, I think there's something very interesting about not missing opportunities and, and anticipating inflection points and understanding the drivers of inflection points. And I call this the inflection paradox. And what it is, it's, it's kind of like two elements which play opposing impacts, which means that we often miss inflection points. And one is Amara's law. Amara's law kind of states that you overemphasize, you overhype an innovation or new technology early on, but then kind of underestimate the, the ultimate impact long term. And so that's that's kind of like everything that's happening with the metaverse and all these things. At the same time, there's the exponentiality of things, which is kind of the opposite, which is at the beginning, it's indiscernible. You're not noticing it. And then suddenly it's too late. It's like gradually, then suddenly. And so I think that the combination of exponentiality for a lot of the innovations or technologies combined with Amara's law is what we call an inflection paradox, which is why we often miss inflection points and opportunities because you're so bored and blasé of the overhype at the beginning, you lose sight sometimes of the longer term possibilities, but it doesn't mean that everything that's hyped has the longer term opportunities. And then also a lot of the things you don't necessarily notice in terms of growth. You know, why is open AI suddenly being purported to be worth $30 billion, able to displace potentially Google, et cetera, et cetera. And you can spend time assessing it. And maybe some people knew, didn't know. But at the, at the same time, you know, was Google fully aware of GPT-3, GPT-4, ChatGP, and that direction in terms of the impact on search were educational systems, were everybody else. So this is, you know, and I'm just giving this as a kind of yeah. stupid current <clears throat> Silicon Valley yeah. example, but this is a combination of those things, you know, the, the, the blasé and boredom of some of the things around generative AI or, or what have you, and this anecdotal kind of TikTok effects of AI, question mark as to real uses. And then you kind of ignored it. And then how come suddenly in 2022, there's not a single person on earth that isn't playing with generative text or image, but it didn't happen overnight. Yeah, no, I love that point. And I think it's that whole idea of balancing the hype because, you know, I totally agree with you. I'm always nervous about, you know, people piling into something and they say, this mm -hmm. is a bad, and they don't really understand what, yeah, what they're, there's sort of it's that herd mentality uh and you know mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually it's quite interesting i suppose um in terms of decision making and you know trying to overcome our cognitive biases because we all have mm -hmm. them and you know following the herd or looking for confirmation or thinking about the next shiny new thing um i mean what, mm -hmm. what do you think about sort of decision making and how you can overcome your sort of uh biases do, do you have any thoughts um on that roger 
it's a very strong focus of where I spend my time. I find these topics like you fascinating and they're very important for the current world, right? Yeah. And there are two or three aspects, I think. Um, <clears throat> one is just simply assumptions, you know, the assumptions you make about the world, trying to, and we'll talk about it maybe later around some of the, you know, Eastern philosophy yeah. and that, but really having beginner's mind, Shoshin, not relying on assumptions. So that's kind of like, Step number one is what are you assuming? And and I put kind of cognitive biases as part of a broader field of assumptions. They might just be less conscious, but you're kind of making assumptions which kind of take the form of biases. So that's number one. What assumptions are you making of the world? How clean is your is your you know filter for for what the world is really like as opposed to what you kind of imagine or influenced, etc. The second thing is is what you know first principles, which I find very you know fascinating, and it's not it's not new. You know, um, Aristotle I think defined, or you know, the Greeks would look at first principle as um, you know the first basis of something. You know, it's like deconstructing, or it's linked to assumptions, deconstructing everything you assume to its bare essentials. So, you know, one concrete example which I find fascinating is, and I know he's kind of the bad guy today, but you know, like many things, there's no such thing as good or bad. And, you know, it's often luminal and blurred. But Elon Musk, you know, when he was thinking about SpaceX, he couldn't understand why Boeing and Airbus and others, um, it, it was costing so much to launch rockets. And he took first principles. He looked at every single materials cost, every single aspect of the costing and how much it built. He took from scratch. How do you build a rocket? He forgot you know, he didn't worry about the half a century know-how of Raytheon or Boeing. And he sort of said, well, our friends in Toulouse at Airbus, he sort of said, okay, how do you build a commercially viable rocket? And how much does it cost? And he established that it costs less than 5% of the cost of the Boeing and the way it's been done. It's not because Boeing or Airbus were being untoward vis-a-vis -vis of NASA or, or the, the customers. You know, when you're dealing with this kind of institutional transactions, you you're not cheating or lying, you know, but it's just simply because they didn't know how to do it in a cost-effective commercially at scale. And so it's by applying first principles, and it's the same way that, you know, Ford thought about the assembly line for the automotive or that uh, Gutenberg thought about how to print press. So it's it's first principles helps you with those cognitive biases and decision-making. And the, the third element, not to spend too long on it, but I, I find this really um a very interesting frame and it's it's you know again people love to hate him or whatever but not being a kind of pro silicon valley on everything but you know sometimes you have useful frames that come out of it is jeff bezos yeah. he wrote in one of his early shareholder letters um about decision making and uncertainty and around reversible versus irreversible decisions and what information you need and how much data you find useful and, and what's required. And, you know, to cut to the chase, or that can expand if you're interested, but to cut to the chase, a reversible decision, basically, it means that, you know, as the name indicates, if you change your mind or it doesn't work out or what have you, the consequences, A, you're able to reverse it and B, the consequences are, are limited, the friction. So, it's, you know, nothing to lose kind of thing. Irreversible decisions are more consequential. So therefore, you don't want to decide too early. You need, or you may want more diligence or information. Um, it's the cost is higher of, of making the wrong decision, et cetera, et cetera. And that 
that has a link because some decisions don't matter. Maybe if you have cognitive biases, maybe your cognitive bias is instinct and maybe it's good sometimes to have instinct. And the more reversible the decision, the less it actually matters on what basis you're making the decision. No, maybe I, data is not the best. No, I, I, I love that point, Roger. And, I'm, and a very sort of silly, simplistic example. When I was thinking about putting my podcast together, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you could basically um, you know, focus hours on designing a, a logo. You could think about mm-hmm. the name. You could think about X, Y, and Z. But clearly, what is a podcast? It's an interview with a guest. So you need to focus on... and. Getting a name, it has to be reasonable, but also getting a good mm-hmm. guess. And then you set yourself a deadline where you have to launch and essentially reverse engineer everything. And anything that is not necessary, go for a very stripped down approach. And you think, what is it that I need to do? Record a record an interview, get a name, get a, a platform and get it out of the door. And I think when you really think, you know, make it as um straightforward and simple as possible and actually when you're thinking about your you know time management i think sometimes mm-hmm. people think too much overcomplicate things and really think okay look what is it that has to get out of the door forget about everything else focus on that get it out of the door and then move on to the next thing i mean clearly there are strategic decision making and if you really need to get something done and you need help obviously get it but i think sometimes people overcomplicate things and and really it's about okay what is you know what are my deadlines what do i need to get out of the door and just get it out of the door um i mean w- what do you think roger no i i love your example because it's um it's it's exactly that you know if you think about it and then extend the discussion it's like okay you do a podcast or two or five or ten that's brilliant if it doesn't work out People will probably even forget or not even realize or care in <laughs> later that you've done it, or, yeah. or even if they do, it doesn't matter. Correct. The cost of putting together a few podcasts under your control is probably not, you it know, is. consequential. Yeah, it's not. Um, <laughs> so, so if you think about the reversible, you know, you could have done, you could have spent two million dollars on a lot of money on, on just expensive consultants, <laughs> um, get an amazing report of, you know, and get the best analysis on the podcast market and the importance and growth of career and reframing your career um, topics and getting the best design of the logo in the world and that. And indeed, all that information would not have changed ultimately because it's the, the reversible decisions. You know, you need just 70% of the information and you don't need the 90%. So even if you got it wrong and no one's interested and it doesn't work and the technology doesn't work, that's fine. To our earlier discussion, you'll know pretty quickly. But the optionality in relation to what it costs you, the optionality is great. If it works, you can meet a million interesting people, develop all kinds of things, ideas, you can build on things, etc. So this is a great, great example of exactly that. I think when people torture themselves with the implications and consequences of decisions which are reversible and which are limited investments and which allow you to plant seeds and optionality and sometimes don't necessarily make that distinction between those heavier decisions would have greater ramifications no i just love that and then and then one day you end up with roger spitz on your podcast what a I'm result sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's roger, always an outside <laughs> roger you should you should be saying i've turned down all these other opportunities harsha just to appear on this <laughs> you bet you bet you bet anyway I, no, I, it, 
I think that's a great note to bring uh, part one of this the discussion to a close. So, Roger, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, look forward to um, uh, yeah, obviously releasing this and to part two. Thanks so much, Roger. Take care. Likewise. Great discussion and great exchange. Thanks, Harsha. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers. And subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.